0: PZ. thank you, Jerry. You know, about 72, he's a completed Jew, hmm. and he is just the most godly singer, worship leader. Uh-huh, wow. It's like a kind of Broadway boy. Yeah. And uh, we we saw him first in March, and we went back with the lenders this Friday night, wow. and uh, oh, we sang Christmas carols. And the
1: whole deal. In Jew in uh, Hebrew. Oh wow! <laughs> What's well, the Hebrew singing, huh? That's
0: right. My is not too good, though.
1: It's not no. working on your Hebrew, oh. Jared. I know you. I know you, Jared probably knows Hebrew. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Well, good deal. Esther eight. It's uh, where we're headed here. And uh, we are um, excited about uh, today having um, Scott back with us as well. Scott, would you read Esther 8 and pray for us, and we'll get, we'll get busy. Sure. A lot of good things in
2: here. Yeah. All right, Esther chapter 8, starting in verse 1. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept, and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the Things seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes. Let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, in the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces Provinces to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force ...of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command... for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Let's pray together. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful just for another uh, Lord's Day where we can gather with your people and uh, just thankful that for this wonderful book of Esther that uh, we've been walking through. And uh, certainly your unseen hand is so clearly seen uh, as we look at these chapters. Certainly in this chapter, we will see it again. And so give us eyes to see it. And uh, I I pray that in application for our own lives, I think We want to be able to see your providential hand. It's always at work in our lives, whether it may be in the background or foreground, uh, and I just pray that we would see it and uh, would rejoice at at your providential work in our lives. I think of the joy that uh, the Jews had here at the end of this chapter, and certainly it should be convicting to us as Christians that we should have deep, deep joy in our lives, should be marked by deep joy, and I pray that uh, you would produce joy in our lives uh, as we consider uh, this chapter. And uh, help us to be faithful to your word. And I uh, pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Amen. Thank you. There is uh, so much applicable. Scott, as you're praying, isn't it amazing how the providential hand of God, that is, should, can just change the way we operate every day. But then this joy at the end. Can you tell us how the first kind of seven weeks, even uh, and maybe the 26 weeks of the providential Uh, Providence series kind of how that should how it does change us but how that should change us just to kick things
2: off here oh I mean I mean it should change us uh, because God is sovereign and he's good and every every single detail of my life is, is being filtered through his fatherly hands I just think one of the things for that series in the summer, and even now, is it starts getting into your bloodstream. I mentioned this before, like R.C. Sproul said, justification by faith is easy to understand. A child can understand it, but hard to get into the bloodstream. Mm-hmm. And so the same with with God's providence. I think we can understand, big picture, God's at work, he's, he's always at work for His glory, my good. You understand it, but then, in, like you said, on a Tuesday afternoon, when something inconvenient happens to us, do we believe it in, in that moment? And I just think getting this fresh in our minds, it's, it's helpful to, in our in the forefront of our minds, so then when something does happen, we're just thinking, oh, this is for my good. Like it's just instinct where you develop that. I remember there was something over the summer, I mentioned this before, where it was difficult, something I didn't really want to deal with. And I was talking to my dad about it. And my dad was like, well, you guys are going through providence. Like right now, this is a perfect time to put this into practice. I was like, it's so true. So I think it helps in that sense, but then it should produce unbelievable joy that God, even through the pain and through the trials, he's working to conform you to his, to his son's image is just incredible. Like it should produce even Thanksgiving in the trial. That, so, I mean, that's, I mean, you could talk, we could spend the whole time on this topic. Yeah, a oh, little you bit. really could. Yeah.
1: And, but I really like what you're saying. To get it in the bloodstream, here's, for, for me, what I've noticed is that, though if I don't continue to ponder it, it kind of leaves my bloodstream again. And I get kind of in the back to an old unbiblical way of thinking it's got to be a continual reminder and and uh so i guess we just have to start over with evident uh, with esther or the providence series again as soon as we're done here in two more weeks jared what's changed in the way you're what's got into your bloodstream from the bush book of esther maybe in providence series as well
3: it definitely gives you a different perspective on suffering and knowing that god is using that that suffering to refine your faith and to uh, make you a stronger believer. Um, We know that our faith is more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire and that God is using all of these trials for his glory and purifying us through them. Yeah. Baba?
0: And Daniel we we learned that God raises up kings and he and he puts down kings and of course that's true of not just Persian kings but all kings all leaders all rulers all sovereigns because he is sovereign and uh, but it, Esther demonstrates just a masterful way of of handling even this character uh, king Ahasuerus or Xerxes whatever you want to call him uh, you know he's he's he, I think he's mellowed somewhat you know he seems to be more receptive to Esther and and more receptive He's he's still passive. He says, "You don't want to fix this problem? Well, you go go send an edict, you know." But and he thinks just by handing the kingdom over to uh, the house of Haman over to Esther and by giving Mordecai the signet ring, then that's that fixes everything. Well, you still got the problem with this edict that you know in nine months or whatever it is, the Jews are gonna die. So you know his 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 uh, response is, "Oh well, you can write another edict." Yeah.
1: It can't be reversed, just like the other edict that can't be reversed. So. And it didn't seem like that first one went so well, so it's just let's do something. Let's do another yeah, edict. Do, do it again. Yeah, right. he's quite he's so, something. Uh, yeah,
0: it's it's masterful, though, the way this story is crafted and, and just just uh, how God is working through these characters, almost like a,
1: uh, a play. Right. And thinking of the crafting of it, if you, um, when you've read chapter 8, if you're saying like, wait a second we just read something just like that it's because it's almost identical to chapter three in in so many That's ways right. jared what's help us with with that when you read that you do you think you know it's just a it's a mirror isn't it
3: yeah the narrator definitely uses like the exact same language in chapter eight <laughs> that he uses in chapter three i think he's trying to show point us to the fact that god is sovereign over specific events and how they're carried out like this is not just a mere coincidence going on here yeah Scott any insights on that well, I thought
1: it's fascinating
2: let me come back to you because you asked us all three of us about the series, Providence
3: series and then even now
2: and I want to flip it back to you real quick and just say for you personally doing the, the 26 weeks and doing the first seven chapters now we're in eight uh, I just think I've heard, like Marcus said, stories about you where you, you, you can't, you try to get out of your van, your door locks. Like, you don't want to open all the way and you can't get out. And you've said, like, well, God either wants me to take a nap or call somebody, like on the phone. Like, you have that, it seems to be in your bloodstream so often. But how has it, how has it been, like, studying it?
1: Oh, no, I think it's, I, I guess that's what I would say is that it really is more on my mind. But then, the, when the trials come, it's still. That it's not always flooded with joy. That's mm-hmm. why I like the way you put that together, Scott, that the end of being joyful, could we almost say that to whatever degree we're trusting God's providential hand, to that degree, joy will just flood mm-hmm. out of us because there isn't any part of our life that shouldn't um, be joyful, be joyful, always. how and why can we be joyful always what's we're commanded in scripture? It's because God's providential hand is working all things together for good, certainly, um, Papa, you've reminded us of that so often, and that's just the truth, so um, so I would say, yes, I do feel like it's getting in my bloodstream more and but I want it to stay in there. Instead of still sometimes saturated, and something like that. it's kind of like my blood sugar. Sometimes mm-hmm. my blood sugar is like way too much sugar in there, or you know, up and down a little bit. I wish it wasn't quite so much. I wish it was a little more level all the way around. Papa, what about this chapter three and chapter eight? Just mirroring each other. Well,
0: you've got the you've got the edict that uh, to exterminate. To, what are the words to destroy, to annihilate, to kill, to. Mm-hmm. Can't lay my hands on it immediately, but uh, and and then and then uh of course Esther uh Mordecai challenges her to go to the king for a time such as this. Uh you're you're there. You're you know, and, and she does. I mean, she's sort of passive in the first part of the story, and but after she goes to uh King Xerxes and he extends the uh scepter to her she uh, gains confidence and and uh sort of takes starts taking the lead. Yep. You see a real change in and his response and and her response and 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 Mordecai as a is a as her uh adopted father uh is 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 also uh stepping up. So there's there's some some more action on on behalf of the players here than yep towards that Achieving God's plan for this event, for this salvation of the Jews.
1: Right. And certainly, when we saw them getting at chapter six, the tide began to turn. Now it has turned and, uh, and it's rushing the other direction.
0: I think this is eight, actually, to me, is the chapter of the real reversals. Yeah. I mean, he sets everything up for nine and ten for the conclusion of the Isn't story. Isn't that great?
1: So. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Papa, seven times the signet ring. Has mentioned in scripture. Papa's done research on the signet ring. He probably has a couple in his pocket. Do <laughs> well, you uh, hand those uh, out uh, to the <laughs> class afterwards? Do we all get one? Everybody gets a thing. I got it out of a, a yeah, Cracker Jack. Cracker jack, jack yeah, you go. <laughs> um, this,
0: is, this is how the Holy Spirit and God works in scripture. This is not, this is not, has, has anything to do with me, but I, I was provoked. I'm provoked by the fact that we're, this is, uh, 473 AD BC and so we're not we're we're within striking distance of Christ you know 400 years or so of Christ and you know how does all this come together the saving uh, we we mentioned if we save the Jews then we save the bloodline of Christ now how, do, how does that happen because the whole Persian Empire controls the world including Israel well I, I started researching Zerubbabel, and I I, 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 I was led to Haggai, and I, I got to read this because it, it's the most exciting thing. It's just a Christmas message, guys. This, this is, this is Jesus. Um, this is uh, chapter two twenty three, two twenty 220 actually in Haggai, uh, shortest next to the shortest book in the Bible. I think Obadiah is the shortest, but Haggai is next in <laughs> and, and the Old Testament. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai. Now, Haggai and Zechariah were prophet, prophesying uh, during the time of Ezra. Um, so, they were, were colleagues there. On the 24th day of the month, speak to Zerubbabel. Now, we know Zerubbabel because he led the first set of captives back in 538 to Jerusalem. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. Now, the governor of Judah, Judah was the province beyond the river. That was the name of Judah at that time. Saying, "I'm about to shake the heavens." Now, this is this is messianic. This is this is end times. This is this, this will bring the hair raise the hair on the back of your neck. I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of kingdoms and kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one of them by the sword of his brother. On that day, and whenever you hear on that day, pay attention. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel declares the lord and make you like a signet ring for i have chosen you declares the lord of hosts now signet rings only mentioned seven times in scripture one times with pharaoh giving it to joseph four, four times in esther one time in jeremiah where he takes the signet ring away from one of the bad kings but he gives it to his grandson zerubbabel and Zerubbabel and the, if you, then I went to the genealogy and the genealogy of, of, in Matthew and the genealogy in Luke confluence with Zerubbabel. They, he's where Mary and Joseph's lineage come together and they both contain Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is the link to Messiah which is Jesus which is the incarnation. Isn't that exciting?
1: That's fascinating. Papa, so when you. we talk about Signet
0: Rings, there that, we go. That's that just was the key, and I went to Signet Ring, and it all
2: just I love it. Papa the historian. Thank you very much for Can that. I just say one, one thing just about Fred's thing right there? I remember R.C. Sproul was teaching one time, and he said people would always tell him, you make the Word of God come alive. And Sproul said he appreciated that. He said, but it would be more accurate to say the Word makes me come alive. Yeah. Well, the Word makes probably Fred come love alive. I mean, you alive. just yeah. saw it right there. Yeah. The, the shining it's, in his eyes. Like, I love it's it. It's exciting. I know. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's
1: great. Papa whisper when he came in, or I got a little bit of stuff on. <laughs> the, well, the thing, that is, we we've talked can't about... can't
0: tell anybody. <laughs> we, we we've talked about how the saving of the Jews would preserve the Messianic line. Mm-hmm. Well, this is how it did it. Mm-hmm. Now, again, Zerubbabel was down in, in, in what is now Israel, but that was included in the Persian Empire, and that head was going to be dead along with all the other Jews if Esther had not acted mm-hmm. W- mm-hmm. uh, with uh, King Xerxes. So,
1: so good. Anyway. I didn't know any of that. That's really good. That's. I might have to listen to the, the tape again. Jared, <laughs> could you help us on 8, 1, and 2 there?
3: Yeah, so it starts off with King Osweir is giving to Esther the house of Haman. And I wanted to read a couple scriptures from the Old Testament that gives us some context for what's going on here. Um, Back in Genesis 22, God made a promise to Abraham. He said, I'll surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And then in Genesis 24, there's a similar thing said to Rebecca where it says, our sister may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. So this, what's going on right here is nothing new. It's... The um, enemies of the Jews, they exalt themselves against the Jews. They exalt themselves against the people of God and try to take them out in evil. And there's always this promise here that the Jews will overcome those who hate them. And we actually have similar language here with possessing the gate, which is what um, Mordecai does to Haman here. So I think the application for us is that we shouldn't be shaken when we have evil rise against us because God is faithful to his promises here and he's made promises to the Jews that they're ultimately going to overcome those who are against them. Mm, it's good stuff, Jared. Um, Scott?
2: Yeah, in terms of the first two verses, I just got to read some from, from this one commentator. Um, he says this, God has taken vulnerable Esther and Mordecai, derelict and bereft of power, literally sitting in ashes, mourning outside the king's gate and has brought them to life and raised them up to sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. It's Proverbs eleven eight in action the righteous is delivered from trouble and the wicked walks into it instead. And he says, righteousness is always worthwhile, but sin is ultimately self-defeating. That's the point. And he says a little bit more. He says, Mordecai's elevation from the dust of mourning to the seat of power is a reminder of God's promise to all his suffering children, that God is no man's debtor, that the righteous is delivered from trouble and the wicked walks into it instead. again, he repeats that righteousness is always worthwhile, but sin is ultimately self-defeating, that if we will not grow weary of doing good in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. And so I think, I mean, Mordecai was not going to bow to Haman. Like, no matter what the consequences were, he was con- convinced I'm about a God, God alone. I'm not going to bow to him. No matter what's going to happen. But we know that if you, if you keep going, uh, if you righteousness is always worthwhile. Even if it means death for him, it's always worthwhile to do, to do the right thing. I just think it's a huge application point for us to not grow weary in well-doing. We know, I mean, it may be heaven. I mean, we may die, but we know this is the right way to act. No matter what, you don't want to cave to it. I remember it just one member of our church was doing something, Jerry, you know who it is, that was filling out this thing for work, and there was a questionnaire thing, and they wanted you to answer this question in a certain way. But in his conscience, he could not answer it in the way that they wanted him to answer it. And he asked us, you know, what, what advice would you give me? Mark was just like, he cannot answer it. You can't say that that's the answer because you know it's not the answer. Well, he could lose his job, but righteousness is always worthwhile. Like, you cannot do it. You cannot do it. And I remember Mark said, what if he loses his job? And, Jerry, you didn't hesitate. You said, well, God will give him a better job. I just thought that's the, exactly the way. It may, you may not be as high a paying job if he lost his job, but it's going to be the better job in terms of in God's eyes. And so I just think that's one thing that we can draw application-wise. We want to do righteousness is always worthwhile. No matter what, it, we may be sneered, we may have uh, persecution, whatever it may be, but it, we want to just keep on being faithful.
0: There was, uh, Along those very same lines, uh, there were several of the commentators that mentioned, well, if, if uh, Mordecai had simply bowed to Haman, we wouldn't have had all this. We mm-hmm. wouldn't have had this edict. We wouldn't have had all this, uh, uh, pro- these problems and these edicts and, and that kind of thing. But like you said, he he did he couldn't do that because of what Haman represented and to the Jews he knew him as he knew him as an enemy of the Jews before anybody else knew
1: he was mm-hmm. an enemy of the Jews. And we would have missed out on so much of this. Oh, uh, absolutely God's providential hand. Alistair Begg said a condemned criminal, a convicted criminal, had all his property taken into the crown and it was disposed uh, at the disposal of the crown. And so the king decides to give it to his queen. He also took the signet ring, the king that is, from the hand of Haman and put it on the hand of Mordecai, thus radically altering the circumstances of Mordecai and the Jews. And so God just does does that through this hole where it looked like it was going badly for a while. Now, Esther. Uh, fascinating here. Salvation for herself, this might have also been big, was not enough as long as her people faced annihilation. Could you guys address that? Jared, could you start there um, for us on that? She wasn't happy with just saving her own hide.
3: Yeah, I think it's. it was such a powerful testimony here to see Esther immediately go to Mordecai and remember everything that he had done in her life. It says she set Mordecai over the house of Haman and I was reminded of the story in the New Testament where Jesus cleanses ten of the lepers and then nine of them go about their way but one comes back and returns praise to Christ and Christ says where are the nine was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner and he said to him rise and go your faith has made you well so I think this should teach us that we're to remember christ and we're to remember the people that god has used in our lives to help bring us to where we are and we're not to forget those people but we're to continue loving them as christ has loved us
1: that's really good that is really good we probably each have a phone call or two or three or twenty to, to make this week for sure on that good Scott or papa on that
0: you know the the setting of of, of um, so Esther's got some authority. I mean, he he gives the house of Haman to the king to Esther, and she in turn gives it to Mordecai. So she obviously uh, is functioning as the queen. She's not just Esther; uh, she's Queen Esther, and she has the authority to be able to do that. And I would say he's probably fairly well off, and so that was a significant. Uh, event Mm -hmm. uh and and she executed that authority again i see esther stepping up more and more and more and taking responsibility not only for her life but for that of her people
2: yeah absolutely scott yeah i mean I i just read verse three then esther spoke again to the king she fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. It's very different from what she was before. I mean, I think even just her faith now, she's just, she's she is a Jew, she's identified it, and now she's just going to pour it out. But it's, it's moving to me that she, I think different people brought this out. Beg certainly did, but she just weeps before him. Uh, And one one commentator just said, this may come as a surprise to us after the happy relief of Haman's downfall, Mordecai's promotion. He said, we want to go to Esther and say, why are you weeping? Like, we should have this feel-good music, the end of the movie's done. But he said, no, it's not all happy. Every one of the covenant people is still under the sentence of death. Haman may be hanged, but his evil plan is still in place. And another guy just said, God's people still faced annihilation because the decree of Haman still stood. Haman had been hanged, but the future of the people of God still hung. In the balance, and so then she passionately pleads for their sort of temporal, as it were, deliverance, and Beg Talked about Paul in Romans nine. I have unceasing anguish in my heart that my my kinsman, according to the flesh, like he wished, he would be cut off, accursed. And uh, so, any man, when you're converted, when we're becoming a right relationship with God we become aware that there are other people in our life who are in a wrong relationship with God. And we immediately have this burden for, for others. And I think this should be a challenge to us. Esther should be a challenge. She goes before a wicked king to plead for the temporal, basically, deliverance of her people. We should go before our good heavenly father and have this concern for people. I remember Vodi Bauckham, after he was converted, he remember he was weeping and he was saying to the guy who I think discipled him, and he was saying he had a cousin that he, he, it was, uh, he, wanted, like, he was so sad about his cousin. And the guy was like, well, we can go talk to your cousin. He said, "No, my cousin's dead," mm-hmm. and like there was immediately this this sorrow, and because he knew that he he died apart from Christ. And there, but there was immediately this is a burden there, so I think just being challenged. Here's a, this is me and Beg together. He said, "The Hebrews passage: It's appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. Life is the most serious thing conceivable, and the only way to be reconciled is through the cross of Christ, through repentance and faith in Jesus." Beg just said, "Where is our pleading before the King who holds the lives of men and women in His hands?" It's challenging. I think we should be challenged just by Esther's example. Paul's example, yeah,
1: good. I really like that. On the the when you become right with God, we've had four of our freshmen who believe that since last April they become believers, and it's interesting as they share that and as they become excited about that and tell others. I think the rest of them, you can see the rest of them thinking. And so Scott, your your point there is really good. When a man or woman is converted. Not only are they set in a right relationship with God, but it then becomes apparent to them that are unconverted that they're in a wrong relationship with God and they must be set right. So that happens as we share our testimony about how we're right with God, not by his grace only, then they will be convicted about their own relationship. Jared, prayer. I'm really uh, interested to hear your thoughts here on the importance of continual prayer.
3: Yeah, kind of building on what you guys are saying, I want to look at, look at this section from the angle of she has to go to the king multiple times and plead before him and ask these things. It says she uses the exact same language that she just used in the last chapter, and she has to go through this golden scepter thing again, apparently. So I think what we can draw from this is that sometimes when we're asking God for requests, it's not just going to take one time. But we should go to him continually and be like the persistent widow in the New Testament who goes before the judge and she's pleading her case every day. We should be like that before God, and we should always be going to the throne of grace and asking God for the things that we need in life, just like Esther has to go again and again before the king and continue to ask for salvation for the Jews. But we, sh- we shouldn't give up hope is what I'm saying. Pops?
0: There was, there was a way she did it, too, here that was a little bit different than... The formal extending the scepter and bow, maybe bowing or kneeling or whatever she did, because she fell at his feet and she was, had a prostrate attitude and reflected lowliness and humility. I I'm, I'm not sure he knew how to re- receive something like this because all the other relationships, like the, the feast, the two feasts, were, were somewhat formal. I don't know what kind of relationship they had you know off script but you know here she's being very vulnerable she's being um she's pleading with him Mm -hmm. you know help me and and uh, that's why i think that he's also been softened i mean the old xerxes or Ahasuerus, i don't think would have taken kindly to this but Mm -hmm. but he he cares for this person he cares for esther and, and and she gets his attention. And and we, like you said, Jared, we need to come before God, the great high priest, and we have ready access. That's why he died. That's why he passed through the heavens and without sin, so we could come to him. So
1: Yeah, I think it was Matthew Henry that said, even when we have the utmost reason and justice on our side, we have the clearest cause to plead, yet it becomes to us, um, becomes, yet it becomes us to speak to our superiors with humility and modesty and all possible expressions of respect and not to talk like demandants when we are supplicants and i thought what a good wow, good great. way to come before the the lord like that as well any more insights there um as we um as we keep going Jared what do you have on for us on um i guess the this first edict is not revoked. These edicts are pretty pretty set in stone.
3: Yeah, I think Esther was expecting him to just revoke the edict. <laughs> yeah. and uh, I don't think that's what she's going to get here. <laughs> but it, it kind of reminded me of how the apostles address Christ in Acts 1, where after Christ has accomplished this huge work of the resurrection and the crucifixion, they say, are you going to restore the kingdom now? <laughs> and he says, no. <laughs> he says, it's not for y'all to know the times that the the Father has set. And I think what's going on here is the fact that God doesn't just immediately restore the kingdom in the New Testament, it gives a chance for his glory to be shown through the gradual conquering of evil. And I think we're going to see that in this story too here, where the Jews are going to gradually overcome those who are trying to attack them. And God's glory is going to be displayed through that. So interesting. Scott?
2: Yeah, I mean I think it comes back to what you were saying at the beginning. The the precision, like even the wording there in, in our passage echoes what chapter three. It's all it's like and you just think clearly this is God's hand behind the scenes working to where it's exactly the same. As the reversal is exactly the same like as the original edict from Haman. And so I think again it, it just reminded me of, the, there's a story in Luke 5 where the disciples are fishing all night. They don't catch anything. Jesus teaches for a while, and he tells Peter to cast the net on the other side. And he's, like, upset. Like, Sproul says, you know, there we're professional fishermen. Jesus, you're the teacher. You stick to teaching, but we'll humor and fellas, throw it in there. They throw it in there. All the fish jump in the net, is what Sproul said. And then Peter says, depart from me, for I'm an, I'm an evil man. And then I think Sproul said, to his everlasting good, Jesus didn't, didn't depart. But then later, I love this story in John 21. The same thing happens, except they don't know it's Jesus. He's on he's on the shore. They don't know it's him. They fish all night, catch nothing. Jesus on the shore says, you know, try the other side. They try the other side. All the you know, fish jump in, and John immediately recognized. He said, it is the Lord. I love that. He said, it is the Lord. And I think here, you just see it. It is the Lord. And I think in our own life, we want to we want to see that. Like we're coming back to the providence thing. Like you encourage somebody spiritually. And they come to you and they say, you know, thank you. Thank you, Papa Fred. Like people who, He's discipled. They come to Papa Fred. They say, thank you, Papa Fred. You really helped me, built me up. Papa Fred should think, it is the Lord. The Lord has used me to to build you up. And I think you come back to that again and again. And that's the providence thing again. Like It's God. It's not me. God is the one who's using me in this. And God is clearly the one at work here. When when God uses us, we should just say, it's the Lord who's doing it. It keeps us from pride, lifts praise to God.
1: Yeah, and let's be thankful for our trials. Earlier we see this, the way they went through, whoo. Boy, Mordecai and Esther, some really deep sorrow there earlier on um, a couple of weeks ago as we were studying. But now look at Esther. She's different. God used the really that amazing, his past faithfulness. Count on his past faithfulness. Go back to his past faithfulness and then trust him better today because of it. And so I think we see Esther is a whole different gal now in the way she, she she's bold she is you know in a great different way so would have it been better for her to uh not go through that trial and continue on easy street i don't think so right god knows that perfectly brings us through the trials in order that we may be more like christ in order we can grow in our boldness all of these things that are happening to mordecai and esther it's it's fascinating and, and very encouraging papa
0: well we just we just learn. um you know, we, we have access by faith in to this grace, Romans uh, 5, uh, you know, in which we stand. We rejoice in the hope. Uh, more than that, hope, our sufferings produce endurance, character, and hope. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's what you're saying. As we go through these things, we gain these disciplines, I think.
1: And I think I would miss that in the book of Esther, except, you know, going through it this time. It's, it's all over there, isn't it? So it's fascinating. How about Mordecai and the way he uh, things are turning around for him, Jared?
3: Yeah, I think it's just fascinating to see that Mordecai was just on the brink of destruction, and now he's <laughs> commanding the entire Persian Empire. So, <laughs> so.
1: He's got the signet ring now,
0: yeah. too. Yeah,
3: that's right. And
1: it's like Joseph, isn't it? I know we haven't probably talked enough about how this story is a lot like, would you say?
3: Yeah, uh, I think this this paints a picture of the parable of the talents where the king goes off to receive a country and he entrusts people with two talents, five talents, and they're to make return on their investment. I think what this shows us is that Mordecai had made return on the talents that God gave him. He had stewarded the time well, he had been faithful with the little, and now as a result, he's getting to reign over this kingdom. And in the same way, when God returns and he brings his kingdom in his fullness, we too will get to reign with him in that way I like it
1: do you remember when uh, Mordecai um, got the fancy treatment where Haman had a um, uh, prayed him around on the horse or whatever and what did Mordecai do went right back to his post right went right, right, at the right gate. back. gate yeah, right back to humble serving and you just see the way the Lord will reward humility um, and, and, and pride goes before destruction oh wow if there is anything clear in Scripture, it, once again in this uh, passage, you see Haman and what happens um, when pride rules the day. Scott?
2: That's, that's good. I, nothing else to add on that part.
1: As we, as we go on here? Yeah,
0: we've we got a few verses. We've Yeah, we've got to get to the joy part. we got to get to the joy. We're we almost there. Back to, We're okay, almost we there. can come back next week well, for more joy. Well, we still got joy. this problem. Nothing's been done about the, oh, we got a problem. the edict. So um, that she she approaches the king. He extends the golden scepter, and and uh, you know, we got to, that takes us back to if I perish, I perish. You know, and, and, and so Esther rose, and she'd been weeping, but now she's standing formally as a queen, approaches him. He extends the scepter and says, "If it pleases the king, if I found favor in his sight, and this thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing." She's still humble. She's not taking it for granted that he's going to say yes let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite the son of Hamadatha which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the promises of the king this is one of the longest verses in the <laughs> in this in the writings i think mm-hmm. uh, so they got this problem and and so what does the king do he throws it back in her laps well then write an edict which can't be you know uh reversed so uh and and she's she's identified with her people how how can i bear to see the calamity that's coming to my people and and the destruction of my kindred so so now before she she didn't even admit that she's a jew and now she's saying my people she's identifying with my people
1: yeah it's good scott anything more on that
2: Mm-mm. I mean, for the for
1: the end, you ready? Or? Yeah, I think we are.
2: Yeah, I mean, I can just read the last few verses then from 15 on maybe. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor, and in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday, and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews For fear of the Jews had fallen on them. And a beg was so good, he just said, Chapter 3, complete confusion, despair, mourning, sackcloth, weeping, fasting. Chapter 8, joy, light, gladness, honor. Who can bring about changes like this in a city, in a life, in a home, in a heart? Only God, only the unseen God who's at work in these great absences. Another guy just said, A people who had been under a law that sentenced them to death now hear a gospel proclamation that promised them life. It's not surprising that they they rejoice. But I just, this is convicting in terms of, I prayed at the beginning, but another commentator said, If the Jews of Persia could rejoice at an earthly promise, a political victory, where is our joy at the sure and certain hope of the resurrection, to eternal life that is ours, sealed by Christ's blood, and guaranteed by his empty tomb? Does your Christian life reflect a deep awareness of the glory to follow, so sure and certain, kept in heaven for you, such that you cannot help but thrill at the goodness and grace of God and rejoice in his promises? You can measure your embrace of the promise of future glory by the practice of present joy." Wouldn't it, Another guy, wouldn't it be a wonderful thing to say of all Christian people and of the church in our time that the Lord's people had light and gladness and joy and honor? The flavor of Christianity is joy, is what Begg said. Um, so again, I just think we should be challenged on this. Do we have this joy? It should be deeper than their joy. And I was just providentially in reading this Puritan guy, and he just said... As Christians, we should not enjoy just an ordinary level of cheerfulness. We should go way beyond those of the world, both in quality and quantity. Our happiness or our joy should be sweeter, higher, more constant than any carnal man. And he just said, consider your justification or consider whatever it may be, one, one aspect of your life with Christ's goodness through Christ. Do not even let a part of a day pass without such wonderful contemplation. Your soul deserves, I love this, to have breakfasts, lunches, dinners, snacks. And desserts, yeah, as well as your body. And it, just, it reminded me of our son, Michael, who loves snack time. He loves <laughs> breakfast time, dinner time, lunch time. He's always asking, Daddy, is it snack time? Is it snack time? And then like, we were driving back from St. Simon's, and in the car, he's like saying, when is it snack time? Is it snack time? I said, at 3 o'clock, it's snack time. He's like, five minutes later, is it snack time? I said, buddy, I'm going to do, I'll, I'll ring. I'll go ding, ding, ding when it's 3. And he asked like 20 times. And when it 3 came, I did the ding, ding, ding. He's like, yes, like it's, it's snack time. Well, like your soul. We can snack. We can, we can eat whenever we want to. Think about your justification. Think about adoption. Think about the fact that I deserve God's wrath. Joy is going to be produced. Like there's, there's, I think Jonathan Edwards talks about this. like an all-you-can-eat buffet, and you never have to stop. Like, thinking about these spiritual truths, and I think, so I'm, I'm all over the place there, but the, the joy here should convict us of our joy. Is our joy greater than theirs? If it's not, contemplate things like what we have in Christ. That contemplate the promises. One promise. You're going to live forever with no pain. Jesus is going to wipe away your tears. I listened to Kevin Young this week, and he said, the fact that he's going to wipe away your tears means meaning it's not distant. He's going to be right next to you, and he's going to lift his hand and wipe away your tears. I mean, that's just incredible. I mean, that joy will produce, so we should have deep, deep joy as believers and be challenged by this passage from, from their relief. Yeah. Really good. Papa?
0: You know, there's one, uh, I know we have to go, but there's one provocative last statement. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews fear of the Jews had fallen on them and I think this is a prototype of the gospel actually mm-hmm. you got you, this is a pagan empire uh, maybe they maybe they're afraid of the Jews because of this reverse edict or something like that and so they're gonna be no I, I think that they, they see they, they, they see that gladness and joy perhaps they see something in the Jews. And the Jews were supposed to be the light of the world. They were supposed to take the gospel to all the nations of the world. That's why God selected them as a people. So perhaps some of this is going on. I don't know. I'm not trying to read something in Scripture, but it's what it says.
1: Mm-hmm. So. Really good. Jared, um, two I'd love for you to address a couple of things here as we get ready to uh, you know, leave with joy. Being ready the importance of that
3: yeah there's there's a phrase here that it says the Jews are to be ready um, for when the people attack them when the pagans attack them they're to be ready to fight back and that same word is used in chapter 3 when it's referring to the, the pagans they're to be ready to plunder the Jews and I think you don't have to tell somebody in their sin to be ready to sin I think it comes naturally in that way I think Unbelievers are greedy for every kind of impurity, and they're callous in their hearts. But for some reason, I feel like it's difficult for for us to be ready to do good. On the contrary, and I think just going back to what Mark was talking about last week in a sermon, where he's he was going through the example of Jacob and Rachel, and um, Jacob had to serve Laban for seven years, but it felt like a moment because of the love that he had for. Her. I think if we could just grow in our love for the Lord, then we would be ready to do good like the Jews are here. And um, I think that's just going to take the work of the Holy Spirit. It's going to take surrounding ourselves with other believers to grow in this love. But I don't think our works should be um, burdensome if we, if we truly had a love for the Lord like this. Well,
1: that's good. Yeah. God's commands are not burdensome. They, they bring great joy. Um, that's for sure. How about the way Mordecai points us to Christ. And uh, Scott, I kind of started us on that a little bit, but what's your insights there?
3: Uh, I don't know if I could add a whole lot to what Scott was saying there, but I mean, I think this is just a perfect picture of what you know heaven's going to look like. We're, we're waiting for a, a new kingdom in which righteousness dwells and there's going to be a king, Christ, who's going through the city and we're going to um, find our joy in him. And I think uh, the last verse too is, It's a reflection of every knee is going to bow one day. And for the Christian, that's going to be in holy fear of God. And for the unbeliever, that's just going to be in straight-up fear. It's not going to be holy fear. But they will be afraid for the the judgment that's coming. So I think it's just a beautiful picture of the coming kingdom. Mm.
1: So good. Papa, any final words before you pray for us? Uh, I don't
0: think so. Uh, he, He mentions this crown he has, this apparently the colors of Sousa, as we know from the beginning, were kind of blue and white, and he's all decked out, and they have great joy, a type of Messiah, a type of Christ. And the signet ring points us to that also.
1: Yeah. Well, I think there's so many things here to think through, but one that I want to take home, and, and hopefully we can, is just, as Scott reminded us, the tremendous joy that we have in Christ. We're in Romans 6 right now. And that we're so free from sin, that, that we're dead to sin and alive in Christ. Just that, and, and Scott, you're right, there's hundreds of truths that we can just camp on that just flood our, uh, our minds and our hearts with joy. So snack, breakfast, lunch, dinner, um, all week long on, on these truths that will flood us with joy. We ought to be different than the unbeliever in, in that way for sure. Papa.
0: Father, let us pray. Uh, Lord, Christ, thank you for Esther. Uh, I had read Esther before. I had not really studied Esther before to this extent. And and what a what a joy! What a, a picture as as Scott has mentioned of your providence, of your sovereignty, and it fits right in like a hand with a, and a glove with. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah and Daniel and the whole captivity and the plight of the Jews during that period of time and just how you're masterfully orchestrating uh, these rulers and and the events to ultimately protect uh, your seed, Zerubbabel, who is a picture of Christ of the throne of David, and and. Um, Lord, what can we say other than Hallelujah, praise God, and thank you for thank you for this should be the first Sunday in Advent, the beginning of the uh, anticipation of the Incarnation, and that's the great joy that we have is that you have you sent a Savior who left his home in heaven uh, almost as a, a an exile to earth to. Uh, To reveal himself to us as an infant in in utter humility and yet uh, Live a normal life like uh, each of us and and die on a Roman cross uh, For our sins and then be resurrected on the third day and ascended into heaven to be an intercessor for us Lord hallelujah, what a story we have to tell so I thank you, Lord, for Esther and and how uh, she and Mordecai point us to Jesus. Amen. Amen.